Okay, good morning, everyone. I want to wish you all a happy Mother's Day. I know we have a few mothers in the room, so hopefully you've heard something from your kids at some point, or you will later if you haven't already. Happy Mother's Day. We are going to begin our class. I'm going to pray, and we'll jump in. Father, thank you for uh, the blessing that mothers are. I thank you for my mom and the, the impact she's had in my life and the way that I've experienced your love and your care uh, through her. We do pray that as we, um, as we approach your word this morning, both in this class and in our, our worship service, that we would be mindful of, of your will for us. Um, give us humble and, and teachable hearts, especially as we deal with um, a sometimes complex and tense subject uh, this morning. Just give us grace and humility, and I pray that you would increase our understanding of your word and, and strengthen our desire to affirm and believe every word you say. I pray for your help now in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we've been um, addressing this issue of evangelism over the last number of weeks. We've defined evangelism, talked about what it is, what's the goal of evangelism, um, spent a little bit of time just reviewing and rehearsing the truth of the gospel, defining the gospel. We, we've covered who God is, that God is holy and he's just. He's the creator to whom everyone is accountable. Uh, man is sinful and fallen and therefore guilty and separated from God. Christ came to die for sinners, to make a way for salvation through the cross, and all men are called to repent and believe. So we've covered those four sort of headings under the topic of the gospel. So if you can commit that to memory, God, man, Christ, and the necessary response, it's really those four points. There's really three points and then, and then a response, but those four headings are really crucial as we seek to share the gospel with people. Um, last week, Stephen did a wonderful job of giving us a, an overview of conversion, what is it that we actually want to see happen? We, we want to see someone saved. So conversion includes this, this spiritual miracle, something God does in regenerating someone, making them alive. That's, that's the, the divine uh, part of conversion, that God makes them alive. There's the, the human part that we see. There's repentance and faith. There's a change of mind, a change of the heart, a change in direction um, and faith in Christ. So we, we've talked about conversion. All of this raises a question. If... if if regeneration is God's work, if that's something that man cannot do, if that's something man cannot, cannot even initiate, if that's something God does, if God is really sovereign over regeneration and salvation, then how does this fit in with, with our responsibility to share the gospel and, and man's responsibility to repent and believe? How does divine sovereignty and human responsibility fit together? Um, we're going to attempt to just not exhaustively explain this, but just give you some biblical insights, hopefully, into evangelism and the sovereignty of God. The goal is to give both doctrinal and practical reflections. Here we go. So I want to answer, hopefully, two questions today. Number one, how should we think about this just from a doctrinal perspective? Um, we, we need to understand what Scripture says. Um, oftentimes, we bring our expectations, our assumptions, our ideas from outside of Scripture and we try to reconcile those with what we see in the text, especially with this topic. But we need to understand what God says about himself and what God says about us. Um, we need to understand this just as a doctrinal matter. Um, we won't be able to do this exhaustively, but if you're newer to our church and you want to know more about this, we have already taught on the doctrine of salvation. And we spent a number of weeks going through topics like election and predestination. What do those biblical words mean? Um, what's the right way to understand them? So we won't be able to exhaustively reteach that whole lesson, but you can go back and listen to that 
If you go to our, our website and look under adult Bible classes, systematic theology, if you go down far enough, you'll find soteriology and some of the, the teaching on salvation. Um, we've also already taught on theology proper, which is the doctrine of God. And underneath the heading of the doctrine of God, we've, we've uh, addressed the issue of sovereignty and divine providence and how does man's free will fit into this idea that God is totally sovereign. So we, we've tried to, to give some teaching on these topics already. I, I want to look at it specifically through the lens of evangelism today. So we won't be able to probably answer every question you have. Um, but hopefully some of those other lessons could be helpful if you've not listened to them. So I want to just, first of all today, look at how we should understand um, God's sovereignty and evangelism from a doctrinal perspective. And secondly, how should this truth affect evangelism practically? If God is sovereign, and if we're supposed to do evangelism, how does this affect what we do? The conversations that you have with your coworker or with your neighbor. So this is sort of the little mini outline that I hope to address today. Let's start with the doctrinal matter. We need to affirm what the Bible says. Simply affirm what Scripture says. And Scripture tells us that God is sovereign over all things. Sovereignty refers to his power or his authority. And it means that he is fully able to accomplish everything that he wills. His will is ultimately determinative. Uh, we're not denying that man has a will. We're not denying that there are secondary means at work in the world. We're not saying everything is a program or that we're all robots. We're just saying that God's will is ultimately determinative. Isaiah 46, verse 8. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. From the very beginning, God declares what will happen and he swears because he is God. This is part of what it means to be God. You have the authority to accomplish all your purpose. That's who God is. That's what he does. God is sovereign over all things. In Acts chapter 4 verse 27, Peter preaches. He says, truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What happened, even in the death of Jesus, was exactly what God had predestined to take place. He's sovereign. Romans 8.28, we know that this is actually good news that God is sovereign, that he works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. If God is not able to work all things together for good, he is not sovereign, but he is able and he does work all things together for good. So if God works all things together for good, if he accomplishes everything that he is predestined to take place, if he does everything according to the counsel of his will, that even includes the salvation of souls. The salvation of a sinner, the conversion of a sinner to go from spiritual death to life, to go from blindness to sight, to go from loving the darkness and hating the light to running towards the light and loving Jesus, that change that takes place in a person's heart. It's not like God is sovereign over everything else, but then he keeps his hands off and says, well, I'm not going to be sovereign over this one little part of the things happening in my universe. No, God is sovereign over salvation. Romans 8.29 says, those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also 
glorified. We see God's sovereign activity. We see his hand actively at work in saving sinners. He's sovereign over salvation. Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Later on in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Scripture makes clear that our salvation is a part of God's sovereign plan that he predestines salvation for those whom he chooses to save. Um, The most extensive teaching on this is in Romans chapter 9. We don't have time to really expound everything in this chapter. But jumping into the middle of the argument, Paul writes that God says to Moses, this is in light of his dealing with Pharaoh, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. God is sovereign over the hearts of men. He is sovereign over the salvation of men. And he chooses to show mercy to whom he chooses. 1 Thessalonians 1.4, Paul writes, We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. How does Paul know that? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He knew they had been chosen by God because of how they responded to the message of the gospel. It was evident that God was at work, accomplishing his sovereign plan to save these believers in the city of Thessalonica. Acts chapter 3, 48 says, When the Gentiles heard this, when they heard the apostolic preaching, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Predestined, called, chosen. The language of election and and of being appointed to eternal life. This is the language of sovereign grace. We don't have time this morning to define every one of those words in their context. You can go back to those other Sunday school lessons and, and go deeper into that. But we want to very simply affirm what the Bible appears to say right on the surface. Not explain it away. And not qualify it, not justify it, not somehow make it say the opposite of what it appears to say, which is that God is sovereign over the salvation of souls. It is sovereign grace. It is a gift. Listen, the fact that God is sovereign over salvation is a good thing. It's a good thing. It's not something that is negative and restrictive. It's actually something that that allows salvation to happen in the first place, apart from God's divine intervention. Think about this. If God doesn't intervene, if he doesn't choose, if he doesn't draw men to himself, if he doesn't call them, no one would ever believe. We see this this doctrine of inability in Scripture, that we are not able to believe. We won't come to Christ. We won't embrace the gospel unless God does something to us, unless he does something in us. So don't get the idea that God is somehow holding people back, that he's keeping them out and saying, sorry, you're not on the invite list. You don't get to come in. That's not the accurate picture. Yes, the Bible says whoever believes has eternal life, but the question is who will believe? Who will come to Christ? Only those whom God calls to himself. Jesus says in John 6, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And this isn't the language of permission. He's, saying, he's not saying no one is allowed to come. 
Sometimes we use, we enter, we, we, we exchange the words can and may. Jesus isn't saying no one may come to me. He's saying no one can. No one has the ability. The Greek word is, is dunamis, the, the power. No one has the power, the ability to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Later on in John 6, he says, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. To be granted by the Father is a gift. This is sovereign grace at work when God draws a sinner to salvation. The reason God has to do this for us, the reason he must sovereignly act in order to to cause salvation to take place, is because what Romans 8 says, that the mind that is set on the flesh, that's our natural condition apart from Christ, the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Do you see the language of inability there? It cannot submit to God's law. It won't happen. We lack the ability apart from God's grace. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says the natural person, or the, the carnal man, as the KJV says it, the person that is still under the power of their own sinful flesh, who does not have the Holy Spirit, this is our lost condition, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. Do you see how this this truth that God is sovereign over salvation is actually good news? If it wasn't for God's sovereign work in our hearts, none of us would believe. None of us would desire to follow Christ. None of us would feel guilty for our sin and desire to be forgiven and made right with God. We would naturally keep loving the darkness in which we were born. Ephesians 2.1 describes our spiritual condition as being dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead people can't hear, dead people can't see, dead people don't love, dead people don't turn, dead people don't follow. They're dead. They can't do any of the things that that we're called to do in terms of following Christ. At the end of this text, it says that apart from Christ, we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's our default position. Our default position is spiritually dead and numb and children of wrath. We are under God's condemnation. That's the default position. We often have this picture in our mind that humanity is in this big neutral pot and that God picks some of them out and puts them into grace and he picks some out of this neutral pot and and puts them under judgment. And that's not the case. There's one pot and it's labeled judgment. And what God does is take some out of that and bring them into life, bring us into salvation. Our natural condition apart from Christ is spiritually dead. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.3, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So get this. By nature, we don't desire to follow Christ. By nature, we're blind and dead. And on top of that, Satan is at work against us, blinding our minds to keep us from seeing. So the cards are really stacked against us. No one would believe unless God sovereignly acts to take the first step towards us, to pour out his grace upon us as the sovereign author of salvation. So God's sovereignty over salvation is good news. If it weren't for his sovereign grace, no one would ever be saved. And listen, this is why it is right and appropriate and necessary for us to thank God for our salvation. Why would I thank God for something that I did for myself? If my salvation is the result of my good judgment, 
that I weighed the facts and chose to follow Christ, why would I thank God for my own decision? No, it's right for us to thank God for our salvation. It's all his work of grace. And that's why it's also right for us to pray for the salvation of others. There's a lot of people who really struggle with this doctrine of sovereignty. And for some of you, it's even been difficult as we've taught through some of these things in our Sunday school class. But I think deep down inside, we all know it's true, which is why we pray for lost people to be saved. What are we praying for? We're praying for God to do something, for God to do something that if he didn't do it, they would never be saved. God convict them of their sin. God open their eyes to the gospel. God soften their heart. God, God help them to understand the truth of your, the death, of res, death and resurrection of your son. Draw them to yourself. We pray the language of scripture and we ask God to do things that the Bible says he does. So it's right for us to pray for the salvation of others. It's God's work of grace to draw them, open their eyes, and to cause them to be born again. So God's sovereignty over salvation, again, is simply a biblical fact. It's something the Bible over and over and over again affirms and states, and we ought to embrace it and affirm it. It may challenge our thinking. It may challenge some of our assumptions and some of our philosophical constructs we have in our minds, but we need to allow Scripture to sanctify our minds. We need to allow Scripture to change our expectations and assumptions and say, okay, at the end of the day, I just have to submit to what God's Word keeps saying over and over and over again and not think that I'm smarter than the Bible and that this can't be true because of my pre-understandings of how free will works and all these other things. No. This is what the Bible appears to say. So we want to affirm it and say amen. That God is sovereign over all things, including the salvation of sinners. So there's a second truth. So the Bible affirms that God is sovereign, but the Bible also teaches us that man is responsible. Now, if we only taught the first half, you might make a logical leap and say, well, if God is sovereign over all things, then it doesn't really matter what we do because it's all predestined anyway. And the Bible's already 18 steps ahead of you saying that's not how it works. Man is responsible. Listen to what Jesus preached at the very beginning of his ministry, Mark chapter 1. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's an imperative. That's a command. Jesus commands all who hear him to repent of their sin and to believe in the gospel. He's laying before his hearers their obligation, their responsibility in light of the truth that he is presenting and in light of who he is as the Messiah, as the Son of God. He says, you must repent and believe in the gospel. It's an imperative. Acts chapter 17, verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So yes, God is sovereign, and he sovereignly commands people to respond to the gospel. We affirm what scripture tells us, that man is responsible, that we are accountable to God. He commands us to repent of sin and believe in Christ, and we will be judged if we refuse. There are consequences for rejecting the sovereign command of Jesus Christ. We all know John 3, 16. It's one of, the, one of our favorite verses in the Bible, the precious good news, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. But keep going in the, in the passage in John chapter 3. It says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. 
Jesus doesn't say whoever does not believe is condemned because he's not elect. It doesn't say whoever does not believe is condemned because he was not predestined for salvation. It doesn't say that they are condemned for something that they really couldn't help and it's not their fault. It says they are condemned already because they have not believed. There is moral accountability for unbelief. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Those who are condemned are condemned for their unbelief. Mankind is morally accountable and responsible before God. Listen to Hebrews 2. All throughout Hebrews, we have these warnings. Author of Hebrews writes, Since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, talking about those who heard a word from God through angelic sources in the Old Testament, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? If we neglect the offer of the gospel, if we neglect the authority of Christ and what we're called to, there is judgment. We're held accountable. Hebrews 12, 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. The book of Hebrews underscores our responsibility to Christ. So scripture teaches, yes, God is sovereign, but over and over and over again, it also tells us that we are responsible. We are accountable for our response to God. 2 Thessalonians 1.6, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Paul tells the Thessalonians that those who are hostile towards them because they're hostile towards God, when Jesus returns, there's going to be judgment because they have not obeyed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are morally accountable for their unbelief. Man is responsible. There's really no excuse according to Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. Some will say, how can God hold someone responsible? Maybe they never heard the gospel. Maybe someone never told them about Jesus. Paul writes, listen, we all know there's a God deep down inside. We can look out at the creation around us. We can see a Kansas thunderstorm in the sunset. And we know God did that. But men, by their unrighteousness, suppress that knowledge. They suppress the knowledge of the truth. It's like we're in the swimming pool trying to stay on top of a beach ball that's under the water. And if we work really hard, we can do it for a while, but eventually it's going to pop up. That's how it is with the knowledge of God. Everyone everywhere knows. And even if they don't hear the explicit message of the gospel that Jesus died and rose again for sin, they're without excuse and will be judged by God because they have rejected him. They have suppressed the knowledge of the truth that was there, the knowledge that is even seen in creation. So everyone is accountable to God. There is no excuse. So here's the question it raises. Is that just? 
Is it just for God to hold men accountable, to judge them for something that they, according to Scripture, do not have the ability to do? If man is dead, if man is blind, if man is enslaved to sin, if man cannot believe and cannot come to Christ unless God draws him, then how can God judge them? That doesn't seem fair. There's a number of things we can say to this, and this will be brief, but I do want to speak to it. Number one, he has that right as God. Uh, We can turn to Romans 9 and see this. Why don't you just flip open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. The Apostle Paul anticipates this exact question. Romans chapter 9 and verse 18. We read a little bit of this passage earlier. Paul concludes after talking about Pharaoh, talking about um, Jacob and Esau. He concludes in verse 18, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And then he anticipates the objection. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? He says, I know what you're thinking. I know you're thinking, why would God hold man responsible for something if God is sovereign over that response? Uh, This doesn't make sense from a human perspective. And by the way, I think that asking this question means we've actually understood the point Paul is making, that God is sovereign. Some people will try to explain away everything that comes before this to say God's not really sovereign over a saving faith and unbelief. But Paul knows how we should be reading him. And he says, if you're reading me right, this is probably the question you're going to ask next. You're going to ask me, you're going to ask me, verse 19, why does God still find fault? Who can resist his will? And there's several ways we can answer this, but Paul starts off right out of the gate. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? To make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? There's a lot to unpack there. The very simple point Paul makes is that, listen, God is God, and he has a right to do that. You see, too often our thinking about these matters, and even our own definitions of justice, are man-centered. We assume that everybody deserves the same shot. We assume that God owes us some sort of human definition of fairness. And we forget that God is at the center of this universe. It's his world. We're just living in it. And he does all things for his glory. And what if it glorifies him most to prepare some for destruction and others as vessels for mercy? Would we begrudge him that right? Would we look God in the face and say, you don't have the right to do that? Paul says, that's not our place to say such a thing. God has that right as God to not save everyone. He's not obligated. He does not owe us salvation. What would be just is actually for God to judge all of us. The fact that he saves any should cause us to ask a different question. Why would God save some of us? Why would God call any of us? Why did God open my eyes and not my neighbor's? Why did God rescue me 
and not my brother or my grandparents? Like, what, did, what is it that God saw in me? And we go, wow, this is simply God's sovereign grace. This is his mercy. He chooses to have mercy on some. And God has that right as God. But there's more that we can say. It's also appropriate for God to do this because sin is morally deserving of judgment. Whether or not we are capable of believing, whether or not we are capable of responding to the message of the gospel, sin in its essence is wicked, it is evil, and it demands a just retribution by a holy God. So really the question of our ability is besides the point. When God looks upon sin, he must judge sin. Sin is morally deserving of judgment. Third, our inability, if you want to look at that, this this inability that we have, is rooted in our sinful desires. Um, There's many theologians who have sort of pressed into this. Jonathan Edwards is one. They've pointed out that there's really two kinds of inability. There's one kind of inability that, that may excuse us from something. You might call that natural inability. But there's another kind of inability that doesn't excuse us, and that is what they've called moral inability. So think about natural inability and moral inability. Um, John Piper illustrates it this way. He says, if you're a quadriplegic who's lying on the floor and you're told to get up with no help, you're not responsible to do it. Uh, You don't have the power to do it. And there's no moral, um, there's there's nothing moral uh, about your inability. There's nothing right or wrong about it. It's simply a fact. But... If you're lying on the floor because you love lying on the floor so much that that's where you want to be, you love it so much that you can't even want to stand up, then you are responsible because that inability to stand up is rooted in your desires and those desires are not morally neutral. Our inability itself is something that calls for judgment because it's rooted in our sinful desires. It's rooted in our hatred of the light and our love for the darkness. It's rooted in our worship of self and our suppression of the knowledge of the truth. So this inability itself calls for judgment because it comes from our sinful nature. If we dislike something so much, we can't do it. You know, I'm not a coffee drinker. If I were to come over to your house, you offer me coffee, and I said, "I, I really can't. What that means is I really don't want to. It tastes like burnt dirt, and I don't like to drink coffee, okay? That's just me. You guys drink all your coffee. That's fine. But if I say, oh, I just can't, that really means I just won't. I won't. So, yes, inability is real. Men cannot be saved unless God does something. But the reason they're unable is because of something moral within them, because of something sinful that is within them. So it is just for God to hold men and women responsible Because he has that right as God. He makes the rules. We don't tell God what it means to be just. He tells us what it means to be just. Secondly, because sin is morally deserving of judgment. A whole life of unbelief and sin and wickedness demands judgment, regardless of of ability or inability. Third, our inability is rooted in our sinful desires. Then lastly, the standard of justice must be upheld. Maybe I could illustrate that this way. Um, I have a Class B CDL, so I can drive a school bus. Um, it's not really that big a deal. It's not like I can drive a semi or anything like that. But um, I got my CDL years ago, and I talked to somebody else who had a CDL, and they said, yeah, here's what you need to do. Um, you need to study this material. Here's the things they'll have you do in the driving test. We even rented a bus, and I practiced in the parking lot. I was like, okay, I can parallel park a school bus. I'm ready to roll. 
Um, and he said, oh, one other thing they'll need you to do, you'll have to go and do like a pre-trip inspection on the bus. And the uh, instructor will have you point out all these different, you know, different parts and different things that you're supposed to do a pre-trip inspection. Because we rent a school bus when we're doing church activities, we'll never actually have to do that. So I wasn't very motivated to study that part. And, and this dear brother who, who was talking to me, who had his CDL, he said, it's really easy. I mean, you just kind of walk through and point some things out and you know, tell them you see it and there's no rust and everything looks tight and you're good to go. Well, it turns out I got the inspector that was like Mr. By the Book. And it was a roll of the dice. You either got A, B, or C. A was like, you know, front axle to the midway point. B was midpoint to the back axle. C was the whole bus. I drew the whole bus. And he wanted me to point out like 65 different things on this bus. And, I'm, and I failed the test by like two points because of it. So I had, to take my, I had to take my exam all the way over again. Now, I could have gone to this older gentleman who was my instructor for the, all the CDL certification and said, I don't know all this material. I was misled. I wasn't told to study this much. I didn't know you're going to expect me to pop the hood and point out 17 different things in this large diesel engine that I'm not familiar with, that you wanted me to pick apart all the suspension underneath and tell you six different parts of the suspension for a school bus. I'm not prepared for that. I can't do that. There's inability there on my part. And he could have said, you know what, you're right. Let's just lower the, the standard. Let's just lower the bar. I like you, and you're only going to rent a school bus once or twice a year and drive it. No, he, he didn't do that. If he were the kind of guy who did that all the time, we'd probably have some bad bus drivers out there, which would be dangerous, right? So we, we can't just claim that because we are unable, because we lack power or ability, that somehow God needs to lower the standard. The standard is the standard, regardless of whether or not we are able to pass it. The standard is the standard. It is just for God to hold men and women responsible to believe, even when we cannot believe apart from his grace, because he has that right as God. He makes the rules. Because sin is morally deserving of judgment, and we have a whole life of sin that calls for judgment. Because our inability is rooted in our sinful desires. Our inability is not morally neutral. And because the standard of justice has to be upheld, God cannot and will not compromise the standard simply because we are unable to meet it. And when we look at all of this, we look at our inability, we look at what we deserve, what we're accountable to, it makes us all the more thankful for Christ, doesn't it? That God would send his son to meet the standard, that he would deal with our sin on the cross, that perfect justice would be poured out, that our inability would be overcome by the spirit of God as he breathes life into us and regenerates us and causes us to be born again. We start to realize how much we have to thank God for when it comes to our salvation. So that's a little bit of doctrinal reflections on this idea of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. How does this work with evangelism? Well, we need to affirm that God is sovereign. He's sovereign over salvation, and man is responsible. The fact of God's sovereignty does not mean that men are not accountable to believe. It does not mean we shouldn't pray. It does not mean that our evangelism doesn't matter. So let me just give some, some practical instructions. Practical instructions. Okay, if, if God is sovereign, but man is still responsible. What does this mean when we try to share the gospel with people? We'll have to move quickly because we're running low on time. Very simply, we should pray for the salvation of sinners. Pray for the salvation of sinners. Since God is sovereign and since man is responsible, 
We should pray for people to be saved. If salvation belongs to the Lord, if it's a work of his grace, and if it's something that he wills to do, something he's planned to do, then we should pray according to his will. We should pray that he would save sinners. We touched on this earlier, so I won't belabor the point. Um, But this truth should move us to prayer. Some people will wrongly say, well, if you guys believe in the sovereignty of God, you believe in predestination, that's going to like totally take the legs out of prayer. There's no point in praying. And I would just humbly submit to you, you should go look through church history and see all the people that believed in this doctrine and how they were the ones on the front lines of the mission field. They were the ones praying fervently for God to save people because they believed God would answer those prayers. They believed God could change someone's heart, and so they did it. So pray for the salvation of sinners. Secondly, share the gospel. Because God sovereignly plans to save sinners, we should share the gospel. God commands us to, so we should obey, and God uses our evangelism. So listen, just because God has sovereignly ordained the salvation, let's say there's someone in in this neighborhood that maybe a year from now is going to come to this church, And maybe they'll hear the gospel from one of you, or they'll hear the gospel from this pulpit, and they're going to be saved. The fact that God has ordained their salvation also includes the fact that he has ordained the means by which he will bring them to salvation. God ordained that this church would be here, that the gospel would be preached on that given Sunday, that there would be someone in the church that would meet them and invite them to coffee, who would ask them questions about their standing before God. All of those are part of the package. God is sovereign, not just over the final result. He's also sovereign over the process, and he uses us in the process. So we are called to share the gospel. Romans chapter 10, verse 14. Right in the middle of this chapter on divine sovereignty and election, right in the middle of it, Paul says, How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Listen, God uses means to bring about his sovereign plan. So share the gospel. Share the gospel. Third, be confident in the salvation of God's elect. Here's the amazing thing. We know that there are people out there that are destined for eternal life. And it's our job to go find them. It's our job to go seek them out, to scatter the seed, because we know some of it's going to fall on good soil. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. They know me. They're out there. We get to go find them. In Acts chapter 18, Paul is instructed by the Lord Jesus Christ to remain in the city of Ephesus. He says, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Paul got to stick around for a couple more years in Corinth because there were still people out there that were going to be saved. And it was Paul's job to go preach the gospel and find them. When Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men, he wasn't like your grandpa who took you on that fishing trip where you didn't catch anything all day. When Jesus takes us fishing, we're going to catch some because he has planned to save sinners. So be confident. Be confident in sharing the gospel that we know there will be fruit. In addition to being confident, we should also be patient. Be patient and trust God with the results. Because God is ultimately sovereign over salvation, because men and women cannot and will not believe unless God acts upon them, that gives us an ability to be patient with people. When we share the gospel and they don't get it, when we share the gospel and they're not interested, don't give up. It may not be time yet. Be patient. 
2 Timothy 2.24 says that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Why? God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Often we, we give up on people or, or, or we don't even share with people because we think, oh, well, they don't seem very likely to hear me out. They don't seem like the person that was voted most likely to become a Christian, you know, in their high school graduating class. But remember, God's the one who changes hearts. I don't think the Apostle Paul, before his conversion, would have been voted most likely to become a preacher of the gospel. I mean, he was persecuting Christians, throwing them in prison. He was standing watch as Stephen was martyred, as he was stoned to death. But we're to be patient and trust God with the results. Who knows? God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Fifth, we need to beware, be aware of our limitations. This goes hand in hand with the patience point. Um, there's only so much we can do. What we can do, what we must do, is preach the simple gospel. But that's all we need to do. There's no need for manipulation. You don't have to twist people's arms. You don't have to cram it down their throat. We don't need to resort to high-pressure tactics. When someone does not believe, it means their heart is cold and dead and hard. And there's nothing we can do to change that. There's nothing they can do to change that. God has to change that. And you know what? That should cause us to just recognize our limits. There's only so much we can do. We should preach the gospel with confidence because we believe the gospel is the power of God to salvation. If they're going to believe, it's going to be because of the preaching of the gospel, not because of how persuasive I am, not because of how likable I may be, not because of some perfect argument I came up with. If they're going to believe, it's going to be because God did a miracle through the preaching of the gospel. And you know what? If they do believe, if they do say, yes, I want that truth, yes, I need Jesus Christ, if they repent and trust in the gospel, then we need to also recognize our limitations. I didn't do that. I can't take the credit for that. That was the Lord's doing. 1 Corinthians 3.6, Paul writes, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So we need to be aware of our limitations. This honestly is a huge comfort to us, that if we share the gospel, if you present the truth of who God is as the holy and just judge, if you present the truth of who Christ is, that he became a man, a perfect man, who, who was also the son of God, and he died in our place and rose again, so that we could be saved. If you present that, and if you, if you tell people that it's only through faith in Christ that they can be saved, you've done your job. You can take comfort in the fact that you have done your duty to present the truth, and there's nothing more that you can do except for keep praying for them, keep loving them. If they want to talk about it again, keep talking about it. I'll talk about the gospel as long as someone wants to keep talking about the gospel. But we need to know what our limits are. It's just not within our power to save someone. And when they do get saved, all the glory goes to God. We need to be humble enough to recognize we didn't do that. Be aware of your limitations. Then finally, we need to be faithful to make people aware of their responsibility. We need to tell people that God commands them to repent and believe. And then simply leave it at that. I don't think we need to go all into this whole intricate issue of divine sovereignty with an unbeliever. Um, I think this is a, a rabbit trail for them. 
This is something that as we read scripture and we mature in our faith, we come to understand. The one thing an unbeliever needs to know is that God is holy, they're sinful, Jesus died, and they need to respond to that message. And we leave it at that. Be faithful to make people aware of their responsibility. If we try to share the gospel with people and we just talk about a number of truths and we don't press home the point that they must respond to Christ, we've not fully done our duty. We need to make them aware. Those are just some practical instructions, and we could say more about that, but we need to conclude. Just wrap it up with these two texts, Isaiah 55, 8. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. If some of this is confusing or troublesome to you, I just want to encourage you. There's certain things we may not be able to fully figure out, um, and we need to be content with that. We, we may not be able to answer every question, and that's okay. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. I would caution you, the things that Scripture doesn't speak to, we should be slow to speak dogmatically about. But the things that the Bible does say clearly, those are for us to know and to affirm and to believe. So let's not shy away from this truth of divine sovereignty and human responsibility, even as we seek to share the gospel with people. Again, a few resources for you if you want to go deeper on this. I would refer you back to those lessons we taught on soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. You can find those um, in our systematic theology class. And also to the lessons uh, on providence, divine providence and sovereignty. Uh, That was under the heading of theology proper. I would also recommend to you a small book. It's a classic by J.I. Packer. It's called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. It's excellent. If you haven't read it, I would recommend it to you. Um, We'll see you back here in 15 minutes for worship. I hope that's been helpful. Uh, Let us know if there's ways we can keep talking about that with you.